Okay, so we're very fortunate to be able to uh, continue sort of where we left off and continuing to talk about uh, the questions of trade. And so our next uh, presentation is going to be Lisbeth van Houten, the University of Antwerp, and she's going to present her paper on world trade as the guarantee for perpetual peace on the value and consistency of Kant's theory of fair trade. Lisbeth. Um, okay, I actually prepared a handout I don't think it will be really necessary to follow, but perhaps I'll just uh, give, uh, pass it around anyway, so that at least like the... Uh, Is it two pages? Uh, yeah, it's two pages. It's two pages. So that the, perhaps the people who didn't print out uh, the paper can have the handout to follow or read the quotes or whatever. Uh, so um, what I want to do with this paper is... Um, kind of investigate whether we can use Kant's critique of colonialism to find out uh, whether Kant has a conception of fair trade and what it's, what this would consist in. Uh, so the first part of the paper consists of um, three different critiques of colonialism uh, by Kant, so diff three different uh, things that um, Kant reproaches colonialists for, uh, colonists for. Um, but because of so, because that, because some of the issues that I treat in this part of the paper have been worked out in much more depth, most notably I think in Annie's and Alice's paper, I'll just go over that really quickly and then uh, go into the second part of the paper, which I personally think um, um, I did a better job in. So um, let's go over the first part really quickly then. Um, so. Um, I, I figured that there were three things that uh, Kant uh, thought that colon colonists did wrong. Uh, so first uh, thing they could do wrong was to um, go somewhere and then acquire lands uh, that were actually already acquired. So, And I noted in the paper that um, the uh, native people uh, from whom the colonists uh, acquire or whose lands are acquired by the colonists can have some kind of legitimate acquisition without um, them having uh, founded uh, a state yet. Uh, so even when there's colonism in uh, regions where non-state people live, colonists aren't uh, allowed to simply take uh, uh, the land that is uh, that is there, um, or that is uh, property of the of the natives. But um, as I said, this is uh, I've said more about this in the paper, but I don't want to go into it right now. I guess. Um, the second thing uh, that, that colonists seem to do wrong is uh, to settle on lands that are used by nomads. Um, so I wrote in the paper that perhaps this seems to be a problem because um, perhaps nomads don't really own the land uh, if we <coughs> look at it from Kant's theory of right because they only seem to use it. Um, nevertheless, uh, Kant says that, uh, for example, in Mongolia, the land belongs to the people, so these nomads seem to be able to collectively uh, possess uh, the lands they're using. Uh, so uh, there as well, colonists are not uh, allowed to simply take um, these lands or, or acquire them. Um, so um, Kant does specify, and I'll come back to this later, um, that um, there's a possibility for colonists to arrive on these lands uh, used by nomads and to settle there and to engage in some kind of contract uh, with the nomads. Um, so this would mean that if there's some kind of situation of consent between the colonists and the nomads, that it's okay for them to be there. Um, in that case, um, of course, the colonists will have to um, yeah, be in this uh, situation of consent uh, with the nomads, and they'll have to um, 
can't uh, write or can't seem to suggest that they will have to take on a kind of modest uh, position. Uh, he says they, that um, that the colonists are not to interfere uh, with the nomads' way of using their land, uh, or that. Um, so he writes, um, a people have the right to resist a neighboring people in adopting a certain use of land. For example, a hunting people can resist a pastoring people or a farming people, but this also means that uh, a, such a, a, a nomadic people would be um, allowed to resist uh, another use of their land, for example, uh, uh, for setting up trading posts. So um, Kant also says something about um, um, colonists arriving on nomadic uh, uh, on lands used by nomads um, that they have to do this far enough from uh, the nomads uh, using the land so all of this um, but I worked this out in the paper uh, uh, more in depth all, the, all of this seems to suggest uh, that if the colonists arrive on lands used by nomads they should do this uh, without hindering these uh, uh, a peoples or the nomadic, uh, the nomadic peoples chosen economical system. Uh, so they have to take a, a kind of modest position. They are not to interfere in the economic development um, of, of the, the nomads. Uh, so then a third thing, uh, uh, I figure that Kant blames the colonists for. Uh, so Kant writes, uh, we are not authorized to found colonies uh, by force if need be in order to establish a civil union with them and bring these human beings into a rightful co condition. Um, so uh, even colonization of a piece of land that is no one's property uh, would be problematic uh, because it would give colonists the right to urge the locals into founding a state and um, Kant believes that uh, colonists do not have such a right um, so, um, a people's political development towards the state must be organic and it cannot be disturbed by alien intrusions. Um, and it is this last uh, uh, critique of colonialism um, that I worked, uh, worked out most, I guess, or that um, has most implications for the second part of the paper. Um, because there seems to be a connection in Kant's, um, because uh, if Kant uh, forbids these, uh, the colonists to um, urge the locals into founding a state, this seems to have uh, certain implications, and I here get into the second part of the paper. Um, because um, because in Kant's theory of right, the uh, possession of land, um, legitimate possession of land, seems to entail immediately the right to urge your neighbors into founding a state with you. Um, and because of this um, um, implication, so um, possession of land implies um, the right to found a state um, with your neighbors. If you're not allowed to, to urge your uh, um, urge your neighbors into founding a state, which is what colonists are not allowed to do, then you don't seem to be allowed to possess land somewhere um, because of this um, very close connection between possessing of land and having the right to urge others into founding a state. And, and so that um, made me think, um, that's why I figured that uh, for, it would be problematic for colonists to um, acquire land in the regions where they 
where they arrive. So it's problematic um, for colonists to acquire land. However, um, as Pauline already also pointed out, constant doesn't seem to oppose <coughs> all kinds of uh, uh, colonization. So there has to be a way in which colonists can be legitimately present on the land um, owned by the, the locals. Um, and I think the investigation into what a fair colonial trade could be according to Kant should start from this, uh, from wondering how uh, colonists can be legitimately present on lands used by the locals if they're not uh, allowed to really uh, possess land there. Um, so this is where I uh, will go. Um, I will just start reading my paper uh, the second part of the paper. Mm. Kant consistently uses the word settlement um, to indicate the way in which colonists are allowed to be on land. And um, in the following quote, uh, it becomes clear what settlement consists, settlement consists in. Uh, so he writes, uh, residing on land is to be distinguished from being um, in possession of it and settling or making a settlement which is a lasting private possession of uh, and settling or making a settlement which is a lasting private possession of a place dependent upon the presence of the subject on it is to be distinguished from taking possession of land with the intention of someday acquiring it so settlement seems to be uh, dependent of uh, upon this presence of the subject on the land so it seems to be a very impermanent and non-engaging way of possessing land uh, because it depends on this uh, physical presence on the land. Kant always immediately links this settlement, or, or very often often links this settlement to um, the presence of a contract. So, for example, in the case of settlement in regions where nomadic people live, uh, he writes, um, if the settlement is made so far from where that people reside that there is no encroachment on anyone's use of this land, the right to settle is not open to doubt, but if these people are, are shepherds or hunters who depend for their sustenance on great open regions, this settlement may not take place by force, but only by contract. So the notion of, the, of a contract is, um, is introduced when Kant uh, talks about settlement. Uh, but it's not only uh, when colonists settle in nomad countries that this contract is required. Um, whenever strangers arrive on foreign lands and intend to stay, a contract regulating their <coughs> stay is necessary. This becomes clear from Kant's addition to the right to hospitality. Um, so he writes, citizens of the, of the world have a right to try to est establish community with all and to this end to visit all regions of the earth. This is not, however, a right to make a settlement because for this a specific contract is required. Um, so for the right to visit, to become a right to stay, to say it in the words of towards perpetual peace, a contract is required. And the reason why Kant insists on this contract is, I believe, precisely that colonists are not only allowed to settle and not to acquire. Uh, as I claimed earlier, settlement seems to be a very pretty impermanent and non-engaging way of living on land. Um, in fact, because it depends on the presence of the temporary owner on the land, it seems to lack the intelligible aspects uh, of true possession. And in Kant's theory of private rights, such mere empirical possession can hardly be called uh, possession. Uh, he writes, I shall not be able to say that the land on which I have lain down is mine because I am on it, 
but only if I can assert that it still remains in my possession even though I have left the place. So a settler's claim on the land uh, on which he finds himself is much weaker than that of a landowner. And I think it's because of this that Kant insists on a contract between the settler and the natives, uh, because this will give the settler some more permanent rights to stay where he is settled. The settler originally has no natural right to demand from others that they respect his settlement when he is physically absent, but he can make his presence on the land more secure or permanent by coming to an agreement with those living around him. And this agreement is not based on acquisition and the natural rights that come with it, but on a number of arrangements made with the locals, and this is the, the contract uh, that Kant speaks of. So this contract seems to be necessary due to the empirical and temporary and uncertain character of settlement compared to uh, uh, possession or acquisition. So every claim that a settler can make on his neighbors must derive from this contract. So the contract is a way in which the settler can acquire rights that he didn't have before. Um, so um, I figured this... Um, I introduced a part about settlement in the, into the paper because I figured that if colonists are um, to engage uh, into fair trade with the locals, a first step towards this was, must be a kind of legitimate presence on their land. And uh, I explained that this, kind, this legitimate presence would be settlement regulated by a contract. Uh, but then, of course, um, I want to talk about uh, fair trade between colonists and the locals, and then uh, we should wonder which form should commerce between these settling colonists and the locals take. Um, <coughs> I figured that uh, the best way to tackle this issue would be to look at uh, Kant's theory of contract, because um, commerce uh, or a just exchange of goods uh, can be characterized um, as an onerous contract. <coughs> mm. So, uh, I will, uh, in the following, I will just present a number of properties that Kant attributes to these contracts, um, and I will draw a number of conclusions from this. Now, uh, to avoid confusion, um, I just want to note that, uh, of course, um, I'm talking about two different kinds of contracts in a sense, because we talked about the settlement contracts before. Um, uh, so, so there are a kind of contracts regulating settlement, and then there would be other kinds of contracts, would be, which would be commercial contracts uh, regulating commercial exchanges. Um, however, there are a number of problems uh, that um, face uh, or, or uh, that arise from uh, commercial contracts, which are also um, problems for for settlement contracts. And I'll mention this right away. So, uh, according to Kant, uh, a contract involves two moments. A first moment would be a moment of offering and assenting. Um, so a commercial contract starts with two parties having uh, the voluntary and positive will to exchange goods. Uh, so both parties must positively and freely want the exchanging of goods. And this insistence on the voluntary character of commercial exchange harmonizes with Kant's insistence on the voluntary character of any kind of commerce in, in hospitality rights. So just like any form of international commerce of whatever nature, uh, the exchange of goods, as regulated by a contract, starts with the mere offering of goods. And to this offer, the second party must assent, otherwise there, there will be no exchange. 
And it first seemed to me like it's this voluntary aspect of fair trade which leads Kant to insist that if uh, the people of certain countries, most notably um, uh, China and Japan, do not wish to engage into trade because they fear possible negative consequences, it is their right to refrain from it. Um, however, um, I've gone, I've gone to doubt whether Kant's defense of uh, China and Japan's behavior in this case is as un unproblematic as I considered it to be when I first wrote this paper. Um, and in the paper, this doubt is um, in a footnote, but I do want to um, present it to you because I think it will be an interesting starting point perhaps for discussion. Um, because it seems to me that uh, according to hospitality rights and because contracts must be voluntary, uh, one party always has a right to reject the commercial proposals raised by the other. Um, but the thing is that what China and Japan seem to be doing is creating a situation in which they uh, um, even refuse to listen to the proposals that are being made. Uh, because lots of uh, people uh, cannot make a commercial uh, offer to the citizens living in, in China and Japan. Um, so the, China, the Japanese and, and, and uh, Chinese government decide to reject every trade proposal in advance, so before it's even made. And I start doubting whether this is compatible with hospitality rights. So um, I looked at... Um, at Peter's argument about this. Um, so he argues that uh, China and Japan have a right to prevent others um, from, mm, from commercial speech, um, but not from political speech. And uh, the rationale behind this is that political speech must be free uh, because it can help to bring about a possibly necessary reform of the way property is divided, uh, which is a result of uh, the or original uh, contingent acts of appropriation. But I figure that if this is the reason why political speech must be allowed and uh, economic speech can be sanctioned, um, I don't. I, I, if this if this is the rationale behind it, it can be as simple as that because some of the uh, less grave cases of inequality resulting from original appropriation, uh, which are supposed to be remedied by uh, political uh, free speech, can, I think, also be remedied by, uh, by economic speech and by economic interaction. Um, I gave, in my paper, I gave the uh, rather uh, silly example of uh, the inhabitants of a certain country constantly suffering from flu because uh, vitamin C containing fruits and vegetables are scarce in their country as a result of, of original appropriation. So that seems to be something, uh, an element of injustice, but it can be remedied by commercial interactions with countries in which there are um, more vitamin C containing fruits and vegetables. So in this case, inequality might also be repaired by economic speech. And so I don't see any more reason to shut out uh, economic speech, speech, uh, and not uh, uh, whereas political speech must remain free. So um, the, the possible deficiency of original division doesn't seem to entail a right to simply refuse to listen to any trade proposal, which is, I believe, what China and Japan are doing. Uh, so this is like. This was a huge excursion from the main paper. As I said, it's all in the <coughs> footnote. Uh, 
Um, and what I was actually doing is talking about um, um, uh, the two moments that are part of a contract according to Kant, and I now want to uh, speak about the second moment and about a problem that arises from this. Uh, so once the primary moments of offering and assenting are over, a contract comes down to one party promising something, for example, to put a good uh, in the possession of the other party, and the other party accepting the promise, uh, which will result in the possession of the good. Now Kant says that a priori, these two moments of promise and acceptance are everything that is needed to make up the contract. But while we can discern a priori that an accepted promise must lead to the fulfillment of the promised act, de facto this is not sure, because people can of course always break their promise. And that's why Kant writes that there must be some kind of external authority guaranteeing that the promiser does what he promised. So he writes, and uh, this is a pretty long quote, mm that every contract consists in itself, that is considered objectively, of two acts that establish a right, a promise and its acceptance. Acquisition through acceptance is not a part of the contract, but the rightfully necessary result of it. But considered subjectively, that is, as to whether this rationally necessary result will actually result, accepting the promise still gives me no guarantee that it will actually result. And since this guarantee belongs externally to the modality of a contract, namely certainty of acquisition by means of a contract, it is an additional factor serving to complete the means for achieving the acquisition that is the purpose of a contract. <coughs> for this, three persons are involved, a promiser, an acceptor, and a guarantor. The acceptor gains, by means of the guarantor, the means of coercion for obtaining what is his. So the actual force of the contract seems to depend on the presence of a third party that has the power to coerce the other parties. Um, but what would this coercion look like? So um, I wrote that as long as the two parties um, engaging to commerce belong to the same system of public right, it will not pose too many problems because the state and its statutory laws and its executive power uh, will make sure that the contract is valid and that it is executed, how its execution is to proceed, etc. Um, so whenever there is a coercive state to which both parties engaging in the contract um, belong, the con uh, contracts will be sure means of regulating commerce. But we're actually considering international trade, which can often take the form of trade with inhabitants of regions where there is no system of public right yet, and maybe even no individual property. And in these regions, it's not the case that contract right is not valid, because Kant treats it as a form of private right. Uh, it must be valid even in the state of nature. Um, but in the state of nature, contract right, like all property rights, seems to be insecure. So there are no generally valid statutory rights complementing a priori contract right, and it's not immediately clear who should be the guarantor, so who should um, coerce uh, uh, the contract, given the fact that there is no generally, uh, generally accepted authority. And even in the case of trade relations with uh, people who have founded the state, um, a, contra a contract right is insecure, because uh, as long as there is no um, international regulation, or, or um, even more, even as long as there is no international law order, um, there will be no shared system of positive contract right, and as long as this is the case, it remains unclear which specific form trade or settlement co contracts should take to be legally binding, 
and as such it remains generally unclear how international trade is to be regulated. This doesn't mean that contracts cannot be set up and that they cannot be reinforced by, for example, appointing a person in whom both parties trust as a guarantor or by the deceived party simply taking, perhaps even by force, what was promised to him. But absolute security that the contract will be effectuated, effectuated cannot be obtained as long as we're in the international state of nature. And I think that perhaps there's, there's a really good chance that it will be or that the contract will be effectuated given the fact that both parties engaged in, into it uh, from free will, so from positively willing this, this transfer of goods. However, in the end, deceit or breaking a promise will always be possible as long as there's no, um, no coercion, no third party guaranteeing um, the execution of the contract. So those attempting um, commercial relations with or in pre-state societies, so the colonists, um, always put themselves at risk uh, because whenever their trade partners break their promise, they must seek for compensation on, on their own. As such, international commercial transactions are an uncontrolled and risky business which seems to be conducive of, of violence or simply just taking what was promised to you rather than uh, uh, being conducive of peace and, and harmonious uh, international relations. Also, um, uh, it's obvious that the lack of a generally accepted system of laws assuring the execution of contracts also affects the settlement contracts that I uh, spoke about earlier because these uh, contracts are not backed up by shared legal authority either. Uh, so co colonists seems to de seem to derive all their rights to be on land uh, from these contracts with locals. But who is actually to guarantee that these contracts are enforceable? So fair international trade depends on contracts, but one might ask what a contract is worth in the international state of nature. This doesn't mean that fair international trade is impossible in the state of nature, but we can never be certain that it will occur. So, all in all, it seems that the pos position of the colonists on foreign grounds is not a very attractive one. Possessing no land and no political rights, the... I don't know why I wrote no political rights, because it's probably too strong. Forget about that. Um, so, the, the honest colonist seems to be uh, pretty dependent on the goodwill of his neighbors and his trade partners. Um, because if they don't respect the contract that is agreed upon, the honest colonist has a, hardly any natural right to fall back on. So his only security is that he can appeal to hospitality rights, which guarantees him some minor protection, uh, because hospitality rights prohi prohibit to let strangers arriving on foreign ground perish. As such, hospitality rights seems to become some kind of protective right for colonists, assuring them at least their lives if they are to engage in this risky undertaking of international trade. Um, so if, uh, I think that a full guarantee that trade will be fair can only be reached when international politics are organized in such a way that it's possible to enforce trade contracts and settlement contracts, of course. Such an organization could be, for example, an international world order, but it could also be something like a world trade organization only regulating trade, and perhaps there's, there are also like uh, other options. Um, so, in this sense, I agree with Bird and Ruska's claim that uh, Kant calls for a legal regulation of international commercial trade. Uh, the question is then, and 
this is uh, the last thing I want to say about this, is how this legal regulation is to come about, uh, because uh, Kant seems pretty confident, and Bert and Rushka refer to this, that the spirit of trade cannot coexist with war. Uh, however, given what I uh, try to argue in this paper, this might be too optimistic, because the fragile situation of colonists, as well as that of the locals with whom they engage into trade, seems more likely to stimulate war and conflict and repression than it seems to stimulate peace and justice. Um, so in the early stages of international trade, um, namely the stage in which colonists settle in regions where no states have been instituted yet, trade regulating institutions are still very far away. Uh, also, uh, I believe that it makes sense that Kant would argue that the initiative to found such institution uh, should probably should probably come from the native inhabitants uh, because the colonists are not allowed if the colonists are not allowed to imp um, force them into finding a state they will definitely not be able to find, uh, force them into finding some kind of international law order or some kind of international regulation so uh, colonists are not allowed to speed up the economic and political development of their trade partners so they will actually have to wait until these trade partners have evolved to such a level that they can uh, also uh, want to uh, uh, set up trade regulating institutions. So uh, the point would be, I guess, that uh, these regulating institutions are very far, uh, are, are very far away, that they're not, not yet coming uh, about, and that um, um, nevertheless, uh, fair trade seems to be very dependent uh, on these kinds of, of regulations. And Kant's theory doesn't immediately suggest any solutions for promoting uh, or bringing about fair trade in this in-between period. So either there is secure <coughs> fair trade uh, regulated internationally, or there isn't, and both colonists and their trade partners can never be safe when they engage into commerce. <laughs>